How did this world become so broken? Why is there sickness, disease, and death? Why is work so hard? Why do marriages end in divorce? Why are children so difficult to raise? Why can't I get along with my children? Why can't I just have a relationship with them? Why can't I seem to get along with others? Why does it seem that others hate me? Why is it that I can't get past my addictions? Why am I addicted? What has caused this pain in my life? Is it from God? Is it because I've done something to God that He's angry with me? Is it because Satan is trying to hurt me or cause some pain? Why are there wars? Why are there murders? Why is it that every single night I turn on the news and There's never any good news. Why is it that it seems that these journalists have to scrape and scramble to find just one story that's uplifting, that's encouraging, that has some glimmer of hope? Friends, surely some of these questions you have asked yourself, you've asked others, You've asked of God in prayer, why? Thankfully, God has answered the questions. Maybe not the specifics, but he surely has answered the general. Why are things so bad? Well, because of man. Because man wanted to live life apart from him. Because of Adam's sin, this world that you and I live in and enjoy is broken. It's cursed. It's fallen. And the Bible says that you and I are fallen as well. That there's none that does good. Not one. That all have fallen short of God's good glory. This is what Moses deals with in Genesis chapter 3, what we're going to think about. Before we do, just want to remind us where we're at, where we're going. Genesis is the very first book of the Bibles. It's the book of beginnings. It tells about how God created the world, created man. That he created us to be in a relationship with him. 
He created this world to be a temple where he would enjoy the presence of man with him. God is not, as the deists believe, a God who just sort of got things going and then went to some other world. But God had always wanted to be intimately involved in his creation. This is why he created man in his image. And because humanity was created in the image of God, we were to rule with God as vice regents, as kings and queens of this world. He himself ruling as a king, this being his kingdom. And God put Adam and Eve, his first humans that he created, in a garden. It was a temple-like garden where Adam was to priestly... uh, keep and protect the garden, to keep out sin and to to live righteously before God. We learned last week that Adam was to tend the garden as a means of worshiping and obeying. And God provided Adam everything he needed. Adam didn't have to plant a single seed. God did everything and he put it before him and he says, take, eat, it's for you. We learn that God taught Adam a lesson that Adam was not created to be alone. That Adam was, to, was created after his creator to be in relationship. You see, hum, human beings are relational beings. We are meant to live in community with other human beings, not in isolation. And so God fashioned out of the side of Adam a helper, a woman, Eve, who would help him in his priestly role of caring for the garden, worshiping, obeying God. And we learned that, that there was this first marriage, that, that marriage is really God's creation ordinance. It's, it's not grounded in the fall. It's not a, as a result of fall. But marriage, the union of one man and one woman for a lifetime, is God's good plan for all of humanity. And that Eve was to be a complement to Adam. That Adam was to lead and to shepherd and to care for his wife. And his wife was to submit to his leadership and to provide and to care for him and and to fill up and complement what was lacking in him. This was God's good design for his creation. And it's good to remember that Moses is writing this not on day six, but rather thousands of years after day six. As the nation of Israel in slavery in Egypt for 400 years in pain and sorrow and anguish have cried out to God that God would deliver them from their slavery. And God raised up Moses to deliver his people from captivity and he sent them into the wilderness and ultimately to the promised land. And Moses is writing from that time in the life of Israel as the Israelites are ending their 40 years of of anguish and sorrow, an entire generation wiped out. They have faced snakes. They have faced dry lands. They have faced anguish, sorrow, and pain. 
And they're at the Jordan River, ready to go into the promised land. And Moses is riding them and reminding them, hey, you want to know why things are so bad? You want to know why there's no water? You want to know why there's no food? Do you want to know why uh, Korah rebelled? You want to know why all of these issues are going on? You want to know why we keep getting eaten by snakes while we're out out here in the wilderness? You want to know why God is giving us the law? Because of Genesis chapter 3. Because Adam and Eve fell from their state of innocence. And that's what we want to think about together this morning. We want to think about man's sin and God's plan of redemption. So I invite you, if you haven't already, to turn to Genesis chapter 3. You'll find that on page 2 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. Um, I would just encourage you, open that, that Bible if, if you don't have one with you. Turn to page two. Look at these words. This is God's word. This is not man's word. This is God's word to you today, to me today, uh, here in Genesis chapter three. I'm going to read beginning in verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. She also gave some of her husband to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig trees together, fig leaves together, and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. The Lord God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, 
and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are made, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground of which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Humanity rebelled against God by transgressing his commandment. But by God's grace, he has provided a way for redemption and reconciliation through the death of another. The purpose of our time this morning, I think, is really for us to understand ourselves. To understand who we are. The reason we are in the condition we are in is because of this chapter. This should help inform the way we relate to others and to God. My hope this morning is that you and I will find hope in Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the one who perfectly obeyed and died the death we deserve. So this morning, our passage outlines for us really the nature of sin and the costly consequences of going our own way. So this morning, I want us to really see three truths about sin. Number one, sin is rebellion against God's will. I think it's important for you and I to understand what is sin. A lot of definitions out there. What does the Bible say sin is? Secondly, we see in this text that sin results in judgment from God. The Bible clearly teaches us that God must punish sin. If God does not punish sin, then he is not just. Thirdly, we'll see a glimmer of hope in this passage. That sin is covered through the death of another, Jesus Christ. So this morning I want us to see these three truths as they sort of are told to us in the, in the passage as the narrative unfolds, the, the story is really part of chapter 2. As I indicated last week, chapters 2 and 3 are one unit. And the climax of that unit comes to us here in the beginning of chapter 3. And then there's a resolution to that climax. Now last week, we saw some many climactic points, some, some areas of tension and, and resolution in chapter 2. But but we want to see that chapters 2 and 3 are really one story. God created man good, man fell, and God made a way forward. 
In other words, why we keep emphasizing grace this morning is because God told Adam and Eve that if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. But they don't die, at least not yet. God could have, in his creation, ended it right there. And whatever day that was that they ate, said, I'm done. I'm, I'm not messing with these folks. I'm going to move on. But by grace, he made a plan. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that before he even created the world, before the, the first molecule, before the, the first foundation of the the world was laid, God purposed to save humanity from their sin. In other words, God knew man would fall and rebel against him. Yet he still created us in his image that he might save us from ourselves. Look with me here in verses 1 through 8. A new character is introduced, isn't it, in the story? A bit of transition. In verse 25, we are told that the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. But we see quickly that begins to unravel. A new character is brought into the garden, a snake. But not just any snake, a talking snake. Now, clearly snakes don't talk. They never were created to talk. And so something seemingly different is going on here, doesn't it? We are told here that this, this serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, in our language in English, it might imply that immoral, he was crafty, you know, he was sneaky. That's not at all what the Hebrew means here. In fact, if you look at what Satan does, he really doesn't do much wrong in the beginning. He sort of takes a half-truth and masquerades it as a whole truth. You see, that's what Satan does. He, he masquerades as an angel of light, the Bible tells us. Well, later revelation will reveal to us that this snake is none other than Satan himself. So, for example, in the book of Revelation, John reveals to us that this ancient serpent here in the garden is none other than the devil, Satan. This fallen angel. Now we're not told here in the story how this particular fallen angel, who we know is the devil, came to fall. But he's just sort of introduced. And he introduces himself to the woman. We want to notice here what he says. Notice how he tempts Eve. He says to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree? In the garden. His question seemingly is innocuous. He's just inquiring. But notice a couple of things. Number one, he changes God's name. All along in chapter two, it's been the Lord God, that covenant keeping creator God, the creator and covenant God, the one who loves steadfastly and abundantly more. No, that's not the God that. That Satan knows. No, the devil doesn't know of this God. He just knows of the creator God. In other words, he's not in a covenant relationship with Yahweh. And so subtly here, he begins to undermine woman's relationship with her covenant 
God. More than that, we notice what he actually attacks is the word of God. What he does is he takes God's word and he begins to twist it and distort it. In other words, he questions, did God say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, if we were to go back and look at what God says, let's look. So we know, let's get God's word here for just a moment. Look back, if you will, to verse 15 in chapter 2. This is what God actually said to Adam. Verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. You see the difference? But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In other words, what what Satan does to Eve is he gets her to doubt God's goodness and his provisions. He gets her to question God's word to Adam. What did God actually say, Eve? I don't know. I wasn't there. What is she being tempted to undermine? Her husband. The one who received the commandment and then communicated the commandment to her. In other words, he's saying, Eve, you weren't there. You don't know what God said. Yeah, but Adam told me that we were not to eat of... You didn't hear it, did you? And if you didn't hear it, then maybe you don't have to obey it. See, what Eve is being tempted is to undermine the leadership of her husband. Later in the narrative, we will be told that her husband's there and he is silent. He, he had an opportunity to maybe speak up. No, no, I was there. That's not what he said. But the point here is that Eve is tempted to doubt God's goodness. In other words, this is what sin does. Sin portrays itself as limiting us from God's goodness. In other words, we see commandments as prohi- pro- prohibitions against happiness. God's just a killjoy. He he won't let me have fun. He made these things and, and I can't have them. And the enemy begins to question the word of God and the provisions of God. Well, we notice that in verse 2 how the woman responds. She responds in, a, in an affirmative. We may eat of the, tree, of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Yeah, we can eat of them. But, now here's... Here's where she gets a little dangerous. She quotes God. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, a couple of things here. Number one, she's very general on God's prohibition. Did God say you couldn't touch the tree in the midst of the garden? No. God said you can't touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's in the midst of the garden. Secondly, we notice here, did God say you can't touch it? No. He didn't say anything about you can't touch it. She's adding to God's word. So first she she sort of uh, kind of takes back and kind of changes it a little bit. Here she's just full out adding to the word of God. God didn't say anything about you can't touch it, right? Friends, isn't isn't this how it is? That's how we are, right? 
I tell my kids, grounded from the TV. You can't watch TV today. They go to their mom. Dad said I can never watch TV ever again. <laughs> I didn't say that. Right? My boss. Man, boss got on to me today. He said, I, you know, you know, need to show up on time. You go to the coworkers. Man, the boss said that if I'm late one more time, I'm fired. He didn't say that. That's what happens, right? We, we take commands, we take instructions, and we don't like them, and so we take it to the nth degree. God didn't tell her that you can't touch. He said not to eat. Thirdly, notice what she says here. She diminishes the word of God, lest you die. No, no. God didn't say that lest you die. He emphatically said you're going to die. In other words, she kind of lightens, we might die, we might not die. And you know why I believe that? Look at what Satan says in response. You're not going to die. You see, she was believing what he was selling. That is, a life without God leads to blessing. And that's a lie. See, the lie that was being perpetrated here upon Eve is that you can live life however you want to live it by your own rules. You can be your own woman, your own man. You can do it and you will not die. You will, in fact, something greater is going to happen. You're going to become like God. Look at the ironic statement that the serpent makes to this woman. For, verse 5, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. How ironic. Satan is tempting her to, to want something she already had. The Bible already told us in chapter 2 that God created man and woman in his image. They were already like God, more so than that serpent ever hoped to be. They were created in the image of God. They were already God-like. You see, that's what sin does. It causes us to, to live life our own way. Because we're tempted as Eve was tempted to think that if I go this way, it will be good for me. Look at how she responds. Look at verse 6. So he's sitting there looking at this fruit. We're not going to speculate what kind of fruit it is. That really is not the point of the story. She's looking at it. And notice what she does. She sees it. And she sees that the tree is good for food. And that it's a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Eat, drink, and be merry. In other words, it was a delight to her eyes. It was a delight to her belly. And it was a delight to her mind. For her, she thought that by eating of it, she would become a better her. A better version. Because then she would know all of this information. This, this stuff 
This knowledge that God was withholding from her, keeping from her. Uh, she, was, she was held back by God, and so by taking of it, she would become better. Well, as we'll see, that she doesn't become better, but worse. We're told in the story that Adam abandoned his role as leader and protector and priest of the garden and succumbs to her temptation. There in verse 6, that latter half, we're told that, that Eve turns to her husband, who apparently was present the entire time, was with her, watching all of this unfold, while he should have been driving that serpent from the garden, exercising his priestly role of protector and provider. He succumbs, and he himself eats. Friend, rebelling against God does not lead to a better life, but to a life filled with shame and sorrow, and as we'll see in a moment, death. The Bible is so clear, the wages of sin is death. When you and I choose to live life our own way, we will die, spiritually and ultimately physically. In verse 7, we see this sort of ominous, sad picture of Adam and Eve. Then their eyes were both opened. I guess the serpent was right. But their opened eyes led them to see their own shame and nakedness. They knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You know what happened? Their marriage crumbled. They're not making clothes to hide themselves from others, but from themselves. You see, sin opened their eyes and it brought shame upon them. They were ashamed of themselves and they were ashamed, as we'll see, of God. And they hid. Sin has a devastating result. It results in judgment from God. It results in us hiding ourselves. It, it results in us being separated from the presence of God. And this is what's displayed in both their clothing and in their actions. And so we see the second truth in our passage this morning. That sin results in judgment from God. As the narrator continues to tell us the story, we are told that God shows up. He's there walking in his temple garden. He's there enjoying God, his people, and this garden he created where he'll be worshipped. And we hear there in verse 8 that as they hear the sound of God, they run and hide themselves from the presence of the Lord God. They were created to be in a relationship, but sin has now separated them. They can't be in the presence of God. As we learned last week, that God must cast them out of the garden because of their sinful rebellion. In verses 9 and following, we see God begins to interrogate them. It's sort of set up like a trial. There, there is the judge asks the questions, and then he declares his judgment. In verses 9 and following, we see God begin to question men. The Lord God called them, where are you? Now, again, this 
doesn't mean that God doesn't know all things. He knew where he was. He is inquiring about this man's sin. Where are you? I'm hiding. I was afraid of you. I heard you and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God responds by saying, who told you this? God knows what man has done. But man needs to recognize what he's done. And we see the old game, the blame game, right? First, man begins to blame his wife. But not only his wife, look at what he says in verse 12. He doesn't blame his wife. He blames God. Look again what he says. The woman that you, God, gave to me, she gave me fruit of it and I ate. You did this. You just, I was good without her. Why? If, you, if, she, if Eve would have never been created, this would have never happened, God. It's your fault. Yeah, you... You wonder why Adam is about to get punished. So then he turns to, to the woman, to Eve. And, and what does she say? It was the serpent that did it. That wasn't me, right? This is what sin does, friends. And friend, you know this is true of yourself. Always making an excuse for your sin. Ah, it was my parents' fault. Ah, it was because of the school I had to go to. Ah, it was because of my friends. Or ah, it was because I didn't have the right education. Or ah, it was because of this or that or whatever. We could go to the millionth degree of excuses and blame of others. You see, you won't rightly know your need for Jesus until you stop blaming others for your sin. It's your, you got to own it. It's yours. And only when you can own it, then will God save. Man hides, God calls, and the couple plays this blame game. Well, as the story unfolds, God announces his judgment. Three forms of judgment here. First to the serpent, then to the woman, and then to the man. I want to look at them very briefly. We don't have time to look at them in detail because we need to get moving forward. We see first in verses 14 through 19 that God punishes man because of sin. And he turns and curses the serpent in verses 14 and 15, punishes a woman and punishes Adam. Notice first in the cursing of the serpent. This is the only one of the three that he curses. He does not curse the woman and he does not curse the man. He curses the ground, but not the man. Because you have done this, he says to the serpent, cursed are you. God curses this, this snake and announces judgment upon him. In other words, he announces his fate. And again, he's not talking about little slithery snakes. He's talking about the one who speaks through this snake. You see, serpents were a sign of health. Even in your own life, you see that every time you go to the doctor. Little serpents on Physicians' outfits. See, God is setting clear that salvation will not be through this serpent, but that salvation will come through another. This is what early church fathers would call the proto-gospel, the proto-evangelion, the, the gospel in seed form. Look there in verse 15, God's announcement of hope. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or seed 
and her offspring or seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heels. You see, verse 15 is really the, the, the whole of Genesis. The whole book of Genesis is organized around the seed of woman. Her children. Because the promise that God is making is that I'm going to save man through the seed of Eve. And so the unfolding narrative as we see in the weeks ahead will be, is this the one? Is this the Savior? Is Cain the Savior? Is it Abel? Is it Seth? Is it Terah? Is it Abraham? Is it Noah? Who is it? God promises that those who enter into allegiance with this evil one will ultimately be destroyed by the seed of the woman. There will be now a cosmic battle of those who are God's people and those who are Satan's. And frankly, there really are the only two tribes of people in the world. Sinners and sinners saved by grace. Those who are in active rebellion against God and those who have laid down their rebellion against God. And this is what we see forwarded in the curse of the serpent. But only that, God punishes the woman. God must judge sin. And notice how he judges her. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Childbirth is a painful process. Not only leading up to it, but you'll see in the unfolding narrative, childlessness, barrenness creates a tension in the narrative throughout the book of Genesis because of this fallen nature of man. But more importantly, what God does here is he offers her a promise. Remember, it's through the seed of the woman that there will be hope. And God here is reminding her that every time a child is born, the snake will be defeated one day. Salheimer writes this, In the beginning at the creation of man and woman, childbirth lay at the center of blessing bestowed on them by their creator. After the fall, childbirth becomes the means by which the snake is defeated and the blessing restored. The pain of every birth is a reminder of the hope that lies in God's promise. Birth pains are not merely a reminder of the futility of the fall. They are a sign of an impending joy. Isn't that true? How quickly the pain goes away because of the joy of a child in your arms. Friends, this is God's purpose. And as you'll see through the story of Scripture, every child born is meaningful to that plan of God redeeming a people for himself. But the fall resulted not only pain and childbearing, but a disordered marriage. A disordered marriage. Look there in verse 16. You shall, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. You read that and you're thinking, okay, that's really good. You're, she's going to want her husband. No, that's not it at all. She's going to want her husband's position. You see the parallelism there is presented. He will rule over you. You want to rule over him, but he's going to rule over you. And, and some might read that and say, oh my goodness, God wants men to rule over women. No, that's not his design. His design in chapter 2 was one of compliment 
Not one of rulership. It was one of care and protection and love and nurture. But because of the fall, there is a tension created where the wife tries to, to, to take the throne, if you will, from the husband and the, the throne is ruled back. Friend, all I, all I have to say is this. The, the reason there's tension in marriages is because of the fall. And only through the gospel of Jesus Christ can, can marriages flourish. As Paul reminds us in, Genesis, or, uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for you through the sacrificial love for one another. Well, God goes on to punish Adam. Ultimately, in all this poetic language here, the, the point of it is the man of dust that is, the man created from dust shall return to dust. What is the wages of sin? Death. God's judgment of Adam is simply this. Pain and death. Suffering and sorrow is the way of man. And friend, we've all experienced that. God here is not saying that work is bad. No, God created work. It's good. He says it's going to be difficult. It's difficult because of the fall. God punishes man and his judgment is clear. You will die for your rebellion against me. Friend, this morning, if you think that you can just keep getting away with your sin. See, the Bible tells us that our conscience bears witness against you. You know, when you feel really bad that you did something wrong, somebody didn't tell you that you were doing it wrong, you just knew that it was wrong. See, that's God's law being written on your heart. And you know, you can get away with sin. You may think that, you know, you're going to get away with it forever. But this passage tells us that, that when you rebel against God, one day you will die. It's true of every one of us. No one escapes this judgment. Our sin results in death. Not only physical death, but spiritual death. So this morning, if, if you are not a Christian, let me just encourage you with this truth. You're going to die. In other words, your life is not eternal. There is coming a day when you will stand before God, this God. And what answer will you give? What will you say? Well, the story goes on by giving us a way forward. That sin is rebellion against God. We've seen that sin results in judgment. But sin is covered by God's grace. I want you to see a few things as we conclude in verses 20 through 24. First, verse 20, see the hope. The man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, if you've been paying attention to the narrative, you're going to die if you eat of the tree of... And then it's confirmed in judgment, you're going to die, Adam. And what's Adam do? The very first thing he does, he names her Eve. Is Adam delusional? Or did Adam hear something of hope? 
Well, as I've already indicated, he heard words of hope. He heard the word that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the snake. He heard the word of hope that you're going to have children and you're going to have pain in childbearing. And so Eve becomes the mother of all living. There is a glimmer of hope, of grace. Adam will live almost a thousand years after he is created. What tremendous grace. We don't know how long he lived from creation to fall. We know that he lived for almost a thousand years. What tremendous grace of God in the life of Adam that he told them that if you eat of the tree, you're going to die, but he lets him live. We see even greater grace that God covers their sin. In verse 7, we're told that Adam and Eve tried to cover their shame. And so is the way of man. We try to cover our shame, don't we? We do it by ignoring it. Our sin, that is. By hiding out. By living in isolation. By not having accountability in our life. Maybe even by reordering God's creation. By saying that, well, it's really not. Sin. All is an effort to hide our shame. Perhaps we're even given to other means like alcohol or pills. Gambling. Things to disassociate ourselves from our real problem. So is the way of man. But by God's grace, verse 21 is written. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Do not let this truth be lost on you. That God covered the shame of Adam and Eve. Not with fig leaves. But by the death of someone else. We're told in the text that he uses animal skins means an animal had to die in order for their, skin, their, their shame to be covered. What Moses is hinting at here is, of course, what's going to be enacted in the tabernacle and the sacrificial system where, where animals will die on the Day of Atonement to, to cover the sin and shame of Israel. God is laying a plan that the death, the death of another will lead to the covering of sin. God covers our sin and shame. Well, as God begins to drive them out from the garden, in text we considered last week as he puts the cherubim, we see then that he removes them from his presence and from eternal life. And some might think, well, why did he take them from the garden so that they wouldn't eat? Well, how horrible would it be if the likes of Mussolini and Hitler were the, able to live forever. By God's grace. He not only covers sin. But he puts an end to it. He does not let man's rebellion perpetuate forever. He deals with it definitively. Maybe not in our timetable. Not exactly how we want. But here's the truth. As I've already indicated. God deals with every man. Because all men die. What is the way forward? In Luke chapter 3, 
Luke gives this long genealogy. I know how we all love to read genealogies about, you know, so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so. But in Luke chapter 3, Luke painstakingly goes through the genealogy of Joseph, Jesus' earthly father. As he goes through it, he begins to trace back Jesus' lineage all the way back. And we're told at the end of chapter 3 that the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. That Jesus' genealogy traces all the way back. And what Luke is doing, as you'll see, is that Luke is putting up Jesus as the second Adam. And you know, chapter 4 follows chapter 3 in Luke's gospel. I know, surprising. And in chapter 4 of Luke's gospel, Jesus is driven out by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, where he will be tempted by none other than this serpent. And you know what that serpent will do? He will twist God's word and he will tempt him to doubt the provisions of God. He will tempt him to doubt the goodness of God, tempt him to doubt the the sovereignty of God, tempt him to doubt who he is created in the image of God. Jesus himself being God. But where the first Adam fell, this Adam doesn't fall. This Adam resists the Satan's temptations. He says, go, get behind me, see you later, I'm going somewhere. And he sets his gaze to the cross. Where he will not only live the life Adam should have lived, he will die the death Adam deserves. The death you and I deserve. But before he goes to the cross, on the night before He celebrates the Passover, the the sacrificial lamb, that that covering that we talked about there in verse 21, where God covers the sin. He does something quite tremendous. He takes the bread and he holds it out and he says, take, eat, for in it, You have eternal life. Adam took and ate of an apple or whatever. And it led to death. Jesus Christ came and gave his body. So that all those who would take and eat of him would live forever. Friend, this morning, if you are not a Christian, I want to implore you to turn from your sin. Stop living life your own way and go God's new way through faith in Jesus Christ. It and it alone leads to eternal life. Take eat of Christ. Believer this morning, flee sin. It may look good, it may taste good, but it will kill you. It will it will keep you. So take and eat of Christ this morning, the one who put out his perfect life for you. Believe in him. Obey him and you will have the blessed life that you desire. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that we would know you and the power of your gospel. Open our eyes to see. Loosen our ears. Open our mouths that we may declare your praises. Save us, O Lord, for your glory and our good in Christ. Amen.